Howdy, howdy, howdy. This is the second episode of the Five Figures Podcast, and this week we're going to be talking about the biggest fight of the week. Mike Jackson versus Dean Barry. I'm just kidding. No, I understand it wasn't that big of a weekend for mixed martial arts, or a week for mixed martial arts, because we're going to be talking about PFL a little bit, primarily just the main event, PFL 1, and as well as the co-main event, and just kind of go down the card. And... We're going to be talking about the this, uh, this UFC card, the Jessica Andrade versus Amanda Lemos card that went down at the Apex in Vegas this past weekend. But of course, the biggest fight of the week that we are going to have to talk about straight up is Tyson Fury versus Dillian White. It was Tyson Fury's, officially, his retirement match. It was pretty decent. From a Tyson Fury standpoint, uh, from a Dillian White standpoint, it was a fucking disaster. But yeah, we'll, we'll probably just start with that. I mean, it was it was pretty entertaining. Again, from a Tyson Fury standpoint, he came out, did everything that he usually does, did it very effectively, and Dillian White did not do anything he does effectively. He came out southpaw first and foremost, which is interesting because in the open workouts. Tyson Fury came out as Southpaw. And so the immediate thinking was, well, is this a smokescreen or is this legit? Now, I, along with I'm sure many of you, thought, no, this is a smokescreen. He's not going to come out in front of the media the week of the fight and just go, hey, I'm Southpaw, and then actually go Southpaw for an extended period of time. He's done some switch, some switch stand stuff in fights prior, but he has never made a concerted effort to stay in Southpaw for more than a round. Off the top of my head, I can't, I cannot recall. If I'm missing a fight that's very obvious, that that demonstrates him doing this for an extended period of time, then I apologize. But yeah, off the top of my head, I can't remember it happening. So the fact that he came out and did the open workout, yeah, from the get-go was like, hi, I'm Southpaw, seemed like bullshit. But then, of course, you come into the beginning of the actual fight, and Dillian White's fucking Southpaw. So that was a bit... That was very funny. The funniest bit, obviously, was that Dillian White wasn't a good Southpaw. I don't know, it just looked like he had no faith in any weapons he had from that stance. I just don't understand what his thinking was. Was his thinking, oh, Tyson's going Southpaw, I should go Southpaw. That's dumb. Or was it... You know, so that he could land his right hook to the body. His big thing is his left hook to the body. That's it. That's been his big thing. Like, yeah, I can bang to the body. And now all of a sudden you want to go southpaw and you want to start landing right hooks to the body? I don't know. It just seemed like... It seemed like a dumb plan from a professional boxer in arguably... No, fuck it. Inarguably the biggest fight of his career. And then, of course, the end of the, f- the first round happens... We go into the second, and he reverts back to orthodox. So, all right, cool. He didn't have any weapons from that stance. I, I'm not misremembering it. No, he ha- he had no weapons. His jab sucked. He did he didn't really have a straight left, and it certainly didn't have a he, he didn't have a straight left with any power. It was like, damn, he's really doing nothing from here. And then he comes out in orthodox in the next round, and from that point onwards, he just really didn't have anything. He did show the left hook to the body in the third round, and there was this point where. Tyson just stepped back out of the way, hit the pullback, and came back with a right hook. And you're like, yep, okay, so Dillian has fucking nothing in this in this fight. And that was basically that. Tyson just tuned him up and down with the jab. Some gorgeous feints. He did that 3-2 and that, that jab cross where he falls through. It reminds me of, and I know some of your boxing purists out there, not that anyone actually listens to this, it's only the second episode, no one's actually listening, but if there are any boxing purists out there, you're probably going to you're gonna roll your eyes. But I think of Nate Diaz, uh, the way that he throws a jab cross, because he'll throw the jab cross, and instead of it being two distinct strikes, which, sorry, I'm about to clap for you, they go, you know, you can hear that rhythm, that one-two. Instead of it being that, it's kind of like a gallop. You know how horses gallop? They don't gallop like one, two, three, four. That's not what their fucking legs do. It's kind of like a... I think I just hit the mic and I apologize for that. But yes, you kind of get that that weird off-kilter rhythm. 
yeah, that's basically what Nate Diaz does when he throws his one-two. Watch his fight with Michael Johnson. It's it's just him doing that for the three rounds, where he throws the jab, and as he's thrown the jab, he's throwing the left hand behind it. And Tyson kind of does that, only Nate can stay in his stance when he does that. Tyson falls forward a bit. And it works out for him, particularly in fights like his fight with Klitschko, because he's really good in the clinch. His overhooks are sensational. He wraps guys up, he smothers them effectively, and as we saw in a, in a couple of exchanges, he's able to land good shots on the break, both to the body and to the head. He's got a very good mind for the clinch and for, I'd say, the politics of the clinch. He understands what an exchange in that area means, and he... he knows when he doesn't want the ref involved and when he does want the ref involved. And he was throwing throwing that from the second the fight started, but it became very prolific from the second round onwards once Dillian went back to orthodox. Once he went back to orthodox, yes, it was just a jab cross or a 3-2 and bada-bing, bada-boom, Tyson doing his fucking thing. The final shot, the shot that put White down, was a rear hand uppercut off of the jab. It was really well placed. It was really nice. I'm trying to remember. I think Dillian was, was he expecting something else? I can't remember how he reacted to the jab. But I feel like there was, there was a reaction and it kind of set up the uppercut. My point being that he was reacting to everything. Tyson had fainted the shit out of him. Tyson had jabbed him up. He'd thrown some really nice jabs to the body. Actually, there were, there were a few times where where White went with the jab to the body, and I thought it was... I mean, it's a good move. Deontay did that really effectively in the opening of the third fight. He didn't commit to it long-term, which is not ideal, but he did try it, and he had some success with it. So I think White going to that weapon was a good move when you have a guy who's got some tricky head movement, who's really good on the ropes at working off of the shoulder roll, yes, use the jab to the body, it's a battering ram, the The body cannot move in the same way that the head can, you can move your head in all kinds of directions, but your body, look down at it, it's a big hulking mass, particularly if you're, what, like 265 pounds, like Tyson, now Tyson's a little less than that I think nowadays, but Actually, I cannot remember how big Tyson was. I think he said post-fight when Francis Ngannou got in the fucking ring. That was the the funny bit about it all. Tyson's like, yep, I'm done with professional boxing. However, here's Francis Ngannou, UFC heavyweight champion and man with a fucked up leg right now who's currently rehabbing said leg. Uh, yeah, let's put on a fucking cross-fight between us. <laughs> I respect it. I respect that he recognizes he can get an easy payday. I mean, I look at Francis as being an easier Deontay because, I mean, his boxing's not that great. His boxing just isn't that great. Go back and watch my Francis Ngannou video prior to the Stipe rematch. I think his boxing, even though I think it has improved over time, and I think he looked really sharp against Stipe in the rematch, there were still some fundamental qualities about his game, which were very irksome. The way that he threw strikes in some scenarios. His left hook, actually, his left hook in the rematch didn't look too bad. But he still gets fucking wild with that overhand right, and it concerns me. And particularly, going into a fight with Tyson Fury, it concerns me. Yes. So that fight happened. That was cool. What else happened this week? PFL won. Yeah, so we have one of the fights of the year. Clay Collard defeated Jeremy Stevens by unanimous decision, which was pretty funny given that uh, Jeremy landed a spinning elbow right in the final 10 seconds of the contest, which are explicitly against the rules in the PFL rule system because they want to encourage guys fighting multiple times a year. It's essentially a tournament. They fight in a season format which I, I watched PFL quite a bit last year, just because they do most of their events on YouTube for free. So it's not difficult to watch them. So I figured I would just, well, watch them. And I watched a number of events. I thought they put on some really interesting fights. I think their statistical analysis that they display on screen is completely unnecessary, and I don't care for it. But besides that, 
I think they are a really impressive mixed martial arts organization that offers an intriguing alternative to the UFC model. And I think they've come in to 2022 with some really good fights. Clay Collard versus Jeremy Stevens in the main event was sensational. Clay has always been a fun fighter for me. I watched a bit of him because when I was making my Max Holloway statistical anomaly video a little while ago, I I focused on his fight with Max. And his fight with Max is fucking sensational because they just throw and throw and throw. It's It's a really good example of how Clay Collard has always fought and how it can kind of let him down at times because he is like Max in that he kind of uses the threat of his volume to destroy guys. Even when he is not landing successfully, he is in motherfuckers' faces and that drains them, that brings them down and that that gives him a competitive advantage. Against Max Holloway, he was doing it against a guy who himself uses his pace as a weapon, who weaponizes volume. And as such, he wasn't able to get the job done. But additionally, that was in his UFC debut. That was the first fight from Clay Collard in the UFC. And then after that, you know, he went kind of up and down in the UFC, lost to some to some guys who, he, in my opinion, he probably should have beaten, like Gabriel Benitez. And then left the UFC, went kind of all around, was fighting in an organization. I'm just looking through his Wikipedia right now, actually. He fought in Steel Fist fight, like Steel Fist as a company. What the fuck is Steel Fist? That's odd. Uh, but he ended up in PFL. And his most significant victory to this point has been against Anthony Pettis at PFL 1 last year. And he had a sensational performance in that context. Again, weaponized his pace, did really good things against Pettis. He's also been boxing professionally for a little while. He's on a bit of a losing streak right now, if Wikipedia is anything to go by. He's lost to four consecutive guys, three of them by unanimous decision and one of them by TKO. But he did get some, some decent wins. He did get some decent wins in his run-up to that four-fight losing streak. Back in August of 2020, he was on, what, a five-fight win streak in boxing with multiple TKOs. So that's impressive. He, yeah, he made a very concerted effort to go to boxing and just say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a better boxer. I'm going to level up my striking. I'm going to be better on the feet. And that's exactly what's fucking happened. He's such an interesting fighter to watch because he mixes all the elements of mixed martial arts together very effectively. And in this fight, we saw exactly that. Jeremy Stevens came out and looked very sharp, in my opinion. I have heard some people... I mean, people generalize how Stevens fights, and they forget that he can throw really, really good shots, particularly early on into a fight. And I thought... He was throwing really effective stuff early on in the fight. He was throwing a pull counter straight right. That was very effective early on. And he hurt Clay with it. His overhand right has always been wild, but he throws it so fast and he is quite powerful. So it's like, well, if it does land, you're probably getting put on your fucking ass. And that's exactly what happened with Clay. The right hand put him down. And... After that point, Clay decided, you know what, I'm just going to get in this motherfucker's face and I'm going to bang with him. He's throwing some really gorgeous hooks to the body. I love the way that Clay throws these shifting shots. He throws your classic one, two, three, your jab, cross, hook, and then he'll step in and go with a right hook to the body and he'll fucking mash it in. And then that's when he'll grab double collar ties and he'll start spamming knees. So you can't really rest with him. He's either at range trying to pick you apart with the jab and the cross, or he's stepping in with hooks to the body, and then when he's close enough, when he's in the pocket, when he's in clinching range, he grabs a hold of a single or a double collar tie, and he starts beating the shit out of you with knees, and then coming up with elbows if possible. He's so fucking fun to watch. He's an incredibly entertaining fighter, and Jeremy was there with him, and was bringing the heat as well, on the feet. Landed some good kicks himself, Jeremy did. So that was cool. 
And then the second round happened, and it was hilarious because I, I feel like Clay has two different sides to himself. He can be that really methodical, practiced boxing practitioner with a good, like a damn good shoulder roll. He has a damn good shoulder roll when he's just focusing on his head movement. Reminds you of Kelvin Gastelum versus Chris Wyman. Kelvin can be pretty easy to hit, as the Israel Adesanya fight demonstrated. But when he kind of commits to being a head movement-oriented fighter, he can show off some really good head movement, like that combination with Chris. I think it was at the end of the second round of their fight. Chris is throwing like a like a like a ten punch combination, and Kelvin sits behind his shoulder roll, sits behind his his lead shoulder, and just pops shots off the shoulder, parries away shots, is slipping and rolling underneath combinations. That's kind of what Clay will do in in certain stretches. He'll be really conscientious defensively one moment, and then the next moment he'll just kind of have his hands down by his waist, plodding forward, trying to create pressure. And he'll just get his head snapped back by a pull counter right. Because Jeremy was timing the jab. And he was doing so pretty effectively. It was just that he couldn't create space frequently and effectively enough to capitalize on Clay. Leaving openings. Because Clay was just breaking down the range of the fight so frequently. Jeremy's throwing right hands and half of the time he's not landing because... They're getting caught on the shoulder of Clay because Clay's now too close to him. Clay's rushing forward with a combination. Jeremy's trying to throw a, a kind of scientific, academic pull counter right hand. And before he knows it, Clay's too close for him to actually land the right hand. Just heaps of fun. And then Jeremy realized, hey, Clay's open to a left hook. And that's just, he just started check hooking and, and just throwing a counter lead hook and Landed some really good shots. It was funny, though, because there are points where Clay is slightly too far to land a really good, solid, fundamental left hook. And so Jeremy has to straighten his arm out. And so he looks like, I think it was Todd Duffy versus Frank Mir, where Todd Duffy throws this left hook that is as straight as a jab, but the way that the the fist is pointed, you can tell he was going for a left hook, and it's just terrible, it's atrocious, the arc of the shot is atrocious, it has no power behind it, and Frank immediately counters him, puts him on his ass, and finishes him, and then I believe, if I recall correctly, I might be thinking of the wrong opponent for Todd Duffy, but then after that point, Todd didn't fight for another two or three years, so, you know, I don't know, that's kind of what it reminded me of, when Jeremy was throwing these left hooks, because they were straight as a fucking arrow, but they were landing, (laughs) but Clay stayed on him, landed a couple of takedowns, Jeremy got a takedown in the third round of his own, but Clay is so fucking good in the scrambles, he's got a great double leg, he's just so tenacious, the first takedown, he got some gorgeous elevation, and then was able to kind of come down on top of Jeremy, off of the takedown, I don't know. It was just a really impressive performance from Clay Collard. Jeremy came, though, with the heat, and as such, it was a fucking banger, and very, very clearly a fight of the year contender. So I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I can't think of a whole lot of fights thus far this year that I've pointed out and gone, that's a fight of the year contender. Like that fight from Bellator last week between those two random scrubs. One of them, what was his name, like Socrates or some shit? Uh, one of the great philosophers. Yeah, so there's that. There aren't there aren't a whole lot of them out there. Oh shit, we're nearly nearly a full four months into the year, so that's a bit surprising. Regardless, sensational fight. Can't wait to watch Clay Collard again. Thought Jeremy Stevens looked high key, a lot more practiced, a lot better than he has in previous fights. So I'm kind of excited to see where he goes with PFL now. He'd run his course in the UFC. We'd seen him against so many of the significant fighters, both at at featherweight and lightweight. I think it's good that he's getting a different environment to work with. He's getting a different system to work with. Their points-based system, I think Jeremy's really going to take to it if if he manages to get some points on the board. He obviously didn't get any points on the board tonight, or in this fight. Now, there were some other really cool finishes. Antonio Carlos Jr. got a sensational finish. 
got a bravo choke and that was really cool he got that in like 30 seconds that's awesome i love watching shoe face do cool shit and make a bucket load of cash because he's a very fucking legit fighter olivier Auburn monsieur he got a split decision i love it when olivier gets a win he's one of tristar's i guess you could say premier fighters nowadays he had some losses in the ufc most notably to like Alexander Hernandez a little while ago, which is not it's not a good loss now because Alexander Hernandez has not gone on to great things like some of us predicted he might. Came into that cowboy fight, got smoked. So that makes Auburn Mercier look not as good as he would otherwise. But regardless, I think he's a really nice guy. I really like him on Instagram for the most part, I think. So it's cool to see him get a win. Mariak Medov got a, a really quick finish over Victor Besta, whose name I've presumably butchered. Rob Wilkinson, the Australian. You love Rob Wilkinson. He came out and he got a sensational finish early going in the second round. His clinch work looked fucking sensational. I thought his striking looked pretty damn good as well. Shout out Rob Wilkinson. Great win. But the co-main event, Raul Manfio, who won last season in the lightweight division... He came out and he finished Don Madge, which is really fucking depressing because Don Madge was fighting a sensational fight. Don Madge, Southpaw, Manfio, Orthodox. Madge is used, utilizing Southpaw really effectively. He's utilizing the left kick to the body. He's utilizing the left high kick. So he's mixing between those two. And Manfio's kind of bringing his hands down, bringing his hands up. Madge is finding holes. He's utilizing his left straight really effectively i thought his jab looked pretty solid even though he wasn't using it a whole lot thought he probably could have been using it a little more but all in all through two and a half rounds he was piecing manfio up he looked really practiced really calm doing all the right things and then manfio who has landed a couple of straight rights to the body convinces madge to bring his fucking hands down because he thinks a straight right's coming to the body again, and then all of a sudden, the overhand right of Manfio lands. Bada bing, bada boom, Don Madge is out. It's TKO. Manfio wins. And you're just like, fucking hell. <laughs> you do the right thing for two and a half round, rounds, and then Roush Manfio just fucking sleeps you. I don't think he slept him, but he put him out. It's like, damn. That's frustrating if you're Don Madge. Yeah, it was it was interesting because he was defending so adequately in the second round, that exact same shot. There's a point about midway through the second round where Manfio throws the same, I'm telling you, the exact same overhand right to Madge, but he hasn't set up the straight right to the body beforehand at this point. And because he hasn't set that shot up, the overhand right hits the glove of Madge perfectly. Madge defends it on the glove just... Yes, it's just picturesque defense. His guard is in the exact right spot at the exact right time, and you're like, yeah, cool. Manfio's got nothing on him right now. He can't land that overhand right. Look at the way Don Madge just defended against that one. And then a round later, bada bing, bada boom, what do you know? The straight right to the body sets up the overhand right. <sighs> Respect to Manfio. It was a damn good setup. It reminded me of Michael Chandler versus Dan Hooker, the way that Dan Hooker was circling away from the right hand because Michael Chandler was just throwing straight right to the body, straight right to the body, straight right to the body. So Dan's trying to counter that with a jab up top or he's trying to parry that that jab to the body, slip out to his right and then land a land a low kick or just just try and counter on the back foot against Chandler who's consistently throwing straight rights to the body and then <laughs> and then halfway through the first round Chandler throws that straight right to the body and instead of just leaving leaving it out there and, and finishing with that shot he then goes to the left hook up top and because Hooker is moving in the direction of the left hook it he doesn't sleep Dan but it puts him down and yeah that was what I was reminded of when Manfio was able to get this finish so if we're looking at the PFL, if we're looking at the standings, uh, in the lightweight division, Manfio is first. He has four points, and then both Collard, Alex Martinez, and Oliver Mercier have three points. 
because they all got decisions, whereas Manfio got a third round finish. And if you finish in the third round, you get four points. If you finish in the second round, you get five. If you finish in the first round, you get six points. It's a cool system. I like it. Whereas in the light heavyweight division, there were a whole lot more finishes. Rob Wilkinson got the finish in the second round, so he gets five points. Corey Hendricks got a finish in the second round, so he gets five points. Omariak Medov finished in the first round. He gets six points. Antonio Carlos Jr. got six points. So both Shoeface and Omariak Medov are both tied for that first pole position. That's cool. You'll love to see it. All right, let's jump over to the UFC event really quickly. We are approximately 25 minutes in, so I want to talk about some of these fights. Let's talk about Mike Jackson versus Dean Barry for like literally two seconds. That fight was hilarious. Mike Jackson yelling about his balls on the ground, how he'd just been kicked in the balls, and oh, my fucking balls. I can't do a Mike Jackson impersonation, but he was just doing that for a full minute and a half or whatever it was, and it was hilarious. It was fucking funny. And then Dean Barry comes out and immediately fucks it up again and eye gouges. He's very close to finishing at this point. Mike Jackson is on the fucking ropes. Because Mike Jackson was doing literally one thing. He came out and he's like, well, I'm going to check hook. That's all I'm going to do. He comes out in orthodox check hooking, okay? Because Dean Barry's coming in and he's trying to throw the jab overhand right. And Mike's like, well, I want to get away from that overhand right, so I'm going to throw a long check hook, and I'm going to pivot as I'm as I'm hooking, which is what a check hook is, and I'm going to get away from that right hand, and I'm going to get away from that jab simultaneously. I'm going to check hook as he's throwing the jab so that I avoid that right hand. And he just kept doing it. Like, watch the first minute of this fight. It is just Mike Jackson throwing check hook after check hook after check hook. And Dean Barry... For a little while there, for a very small moment, not having any idea what to do to land effectively. And it's fucking hilarious. And then the shot to the nuts happens, and Dean Barry gets an opportunity, I guess, to just think about things. To go through, hold on, what went wrong? That means I am not actually able to land on Mike fucking Jackson, the guy who lost to Mickey Gall, the guy who couldn't finish seeing motherfucking punk. And then he figured his shit out and nearly finished the fight. And then he went and eye-gouged. And he got DQ'd. So I think this fight got set up like multiple times. It wasn't just, Dean Mary and Mike Jackson are available, let's put them all together. No, this fight was put together on multiple occasions, despite pullouts. And we got this. And that... That makes me laugh because it felt like the UFC were pushing Dean Barry and wanted Dean Barry to be something. And he comes out and he's not that impressive, if I'm being completely honest. What else was there? Felipe Linz defeated Marcin Pragnio. It was a pretty entertaining fight. Pragnio got fucking tired. Holy shit. And man, he was doing some interesting things. He was throwing the... He was throwing the high kick, and then he was throwing the same side punch immediately after the high kick. Reminds you, the the most famous example will always be, not will always be, it's only been a thing for a couple of years, but Israel Adesanya versus Derek Brunson. Izzy, in the finishing combination, lands a question mark kick with his right leg, and then immediately after landing the question mark kick, literally as he's bringing the kick back down to the ground, he throws a straight right, and it rocks the fuck out of Derek Brunson. And that's kind of the same concept that Pracnio was using. I don't think he was directly emulating Israel Adesanya. It, it's a pretty common setup in the world of kickboxing and karate and whatnot, but still, that's that's the the train of thought that he was displaying. And whilst I like where he was coming from, he was getting counted a lot, okay? It was left hook city. Felipe Linz was landing. He was landing constantly. It just felt like early on in the fight, Pracnio had the speed to use his hands down by the waist style and just dart in and out. Had some had a nice sidekick. Had a really nice sidekick that he, he showcased early on in the fight. But then as the fight went on, he got so fucking tired. The grappling tired him out so much. And he's still got his hands down by his waist, and he's still trying to dart in, and he's still trying to throw these high kicks without a whole lot of setup. And he's just getting fucking... He's getting clocked. And then in the grappling, it was actually a lot more even than I thought it would be. But yeah, it was... I 
I felt like Linz won that. Came away with a 29-28 unanimous decision over Pracnio. I was kind of excited to see what Pracnio did in this matchup, and I didn't think he looked that good, if I'm being honest. He got tired really quickly. Preston Parsons got his first win in the UFC against short-notice debuting fighter Evan Elder. That was actually a really fun fight. Really fun fight. Preston Parsons looks so fucking good on top. Just ridiculously good. He was getting into half guard and he was he was using the cross face. He was using like he was basically threatening head and arm choke at one point, and he's uni- utilizing all these grips to pass from half guard, not even into side control. He's passing directly into mount. It was just really impressive. Really impressive. And there was a there was a sweep that he hit early on in the third round because Evan Elder tried to take him down. And Preston just swept him immediately. I believe, if I am recalling correctly, it was off of the butterfly hooks. And if it's a double butterfly hook sweep, I approve. That shit's hot. That shit is hot in all circumstances. Yeah, and on the feet, I thought he looked really really good. He showcased early on in the fight a nice pullback straight right, and then he was following up with the right uppercut. He looked nice. I thought his striking looked very good. And on top, I mean, he was threatening from mount for extended periods of time. Evan Elder was showing his back and then trying to cut back to mount so as to hit a sweep or bring Preston back into half guard. And by the third round, Preston was pretty keyed up on it. There was a point where Evan, yeah, in the third round, he gave up his back and Preston stayed strong with the hips on top. And then when Evan tried to cut back and, and push the leg, push Preston's leg back into half guard, yeah, Preston, was he wasn't having any of it. He was landing elbows. He was landing a lot of really hard ground and pound. Very nearly got the finish at the end of the fight. It was quite impressive. We're going to jump around to some other fights. What do we got? Tyson Pedro finally made his return after a very long time. He was fighting Ike Villanueva. Ike's leg-kicking defense is fucking horrendous. Actually, he checked one early on. He did that kind of, I'm going to reference it as the Jose Aldo check because Jose Aldo does it better than so many other motherfuckers. When you're checking the calf kick and you you retract the bottom of your leg, you retract your your shin. It, it's not like a standard check where you kind of, you push the shin out into your opponent's kick. No, you just like pull the bottom of the leg away so that they're, they're kicking nothing. Uh, Jose did it a whole lot to Pedro Munoz. He did it to Rob Font. He's done it to fucking everyone at this point. And uh, Ike actually did that at one point, early on in this fight. And according to Tyson, in the post-fight interview, he did reference a check that Villanueva was able to land. So perhaps that was it. Perhaps Tyson went for the low kick that check from Ike occurred, and it hurt his leg, but, I mean, he kept on kicking, and he was able to knock Villanueva down at the end of the round, in a really sloppy combination. Tyson landed this this two-punch combination, stepped in, and then stepped back to avoid the return counterfire from Villanueva, and then landed this outside low kick. The outside low kick looked nice, but the, uh, the hands leading into that combination, leading into that finish, not that great. But, yeah, he looked... Besides that, he looked really good, I felt. Really calm. His striking has looked really fucking solid for quite a while now. Ever since that loss to Ali Latifi, I felt like he came away after that Latifi fight and he went, you know, I was not prepared for that. I thought, you know, I I thought my striking was good, but ultimately I, I was too patient, I wasn't throwing enough, and I wasn't setting things up effectively enough, it was a fairly dull fight for what we expected going into it, but then you go to the Ovin St. Prue fight, a fight that he also lost, disappointingly enough, but his striking looks so much better there, so his striking's been good for for a little while, Um, I just thought he was setting things up so much better in this fight than he ever has, and not really surprising, I mean, you look at his corner, you see his dad, of course, and uh, you also see Eugene Behrman. Eugene's sitting there, and, and then you're watching 
Tyson just hip fainting for days. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of Eugene Behrman's MO at this point. And uh, there were a lot of points where Villanueva was biting on those hip feints. It was really impressive. I thought, um, I thought it was really good to see Tyson back doing his thing. Villanueva's not the cream of the crop in terms of the light heavyweight division by any stretch of the imagination. So it was kind of funny watching Tyson deadpan the camera immediately after and look all angry and menacing and stalking the cage. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that's it's not really the upper echelon of the light heavyweight division, Mr. Pedro. You didn't just knock out Yuri Prohaska. You didn't knock out Glover Teixeira or anyone like that. You're, you knocked out Ike Villanueva. It's not the most impressive win in the world, is all I'm saying. But it was really good to see regardless. Marc-Andre Barriot defeated Jordan Wright by submission with a guillotine. Jordan basically was not respecting the guillotine while trying to hit a takedown. It was kind of funny. <laughs> it's always... It's interesting because we always joke about pulling guard and going to the guillotine when you're being taken down and how it's in most circumstances a disastrous decision but then Mark andre Barriot did it against Jordan Wright and then immediately after Charles Jordan gets Lando Venata with it after Lando landed a fucking gorgeous takedown in the first minute and a half of their fight and then Lando what was it it wasn't like it wasn't like Lando wasn't respecting the guillotine while he was hitting a takedown, though, I guess. In in that context, Charles landed a beautiful shot. I believe it was a straight left as Lando was bringing up his lead leg. Because Lando was doing this kind of Muay Thai-esque thing where he was bringing up the lead leg rhythmically. Like, every now and again, he would just kind of bring the lead leg up. He wasn't snapping out a, a teep or anything. He was just bringing it up. It felt like he was doing that as his rhythm, as his fight rhythm. And Charles timed it and threw a straight left down the middle and knocked his ass down. And then followed up and was able to get a guillotine and kind of went off to the side. I thought it was going to turn into a fucking dash choke or something for a second there. But it was a one-armed guillotine. That he, It was one-armed guillotine for the most part. And then I think at the end, he got the grip with the other hand and tightened it up and Lando had to tap. It was cool. I liked it. The Marc-Andre Barriot one, that was funny. Macy Barber had a decent fight with Montana De La Rosa. Macy was doing the only thing of particular interest because most of this fight happened in the clinch on the cage. Most of it was, you know, there were, there were a couple of uh, there were a couple of hip toss takedowns that were like, cool. Unfortunately, I'm not a fucking judoka. I, I can talk about with a tiny bit of authority on Brazilian jiu-jitsu and boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai this kind of shit, some wrestling techniques, but shit, when it comes to judo, I'm not going to be able to give you the traditional fucking names of shit, and that frustrates me, because I feel like I'm not a proper MMA hipster if I can't tell you exactly what the traditional names of these fucking hip tosses are, but yeah, there, there was a couple of those bad boys, head and arm throws galore, you're like, oh, women's MMA, cool. But then at the same time, Macy Barber was doing cool shit in the clinch. So it feels very reductionist to be like, oh, women's MMA. And roll your eyes. No, Macy Barber was doing some decent things in the clinch. She was getting good posture. She was getting her like forehead underneath the chin of Montana De La Rosa, which is forcing De La Rosa's chin up. And then she's going over the top with, with the hands and the elbows. And of course, she was wrapping up the far hand. So she's on a body lock, both arms around her opponent, around De La Rosa, and with, let's say, hypothetically, her right arm, she's grabbing around and she's taking control of the arm closest to the fence, De La Rosa's closest arm to the fence. And she takes control of that, and then, because now Montana De La Rosa is one-handed and Macy Barber is in a good position to land offensive strikes... Macy just starts letting loose and landing some bombs. That was really impressive. I like the way that she wraps up the hands. She's done it in previous fights. It's not like this is the first time she's ever done it, but she just did it really effectively in this context. It was entertaining to watch. I had a good time. Additionally, there was, back in the, the prelims, I, I didn't mention Arichi Long versus Cameron Else, but 
Arichi Long put on a fucking sensational performance, threw some gorgeous left hooks to the body, and crumpled Cameron else. I thought he looked really good. Yeah, that was a really sensational performance. I don't believe I mentioned Sergei Kandoshko versus Dwight Grant. That fight was kind of messy. Kandoshko was able to get the finish, but yeah, it was it was a really messy fight. Kendoshko at points looks so calm, so practiced, so good. And then he kind of gets into these rhythms. Like he was throwing the jab just over and over again at this consistent rhythm. And Dwight was just able to time a counter and put him on his ass. It's like, you can't be that predictable, Mr. Kendoshko. Yes, but it was it was an interesting fight, I thought. The initial knockdown occurred in the pocket while they were both just swaying and banging. Kandoshko in that kind of exchange can be quite successful. As we saw with his UFC debut, he he gets behind his lead shoulder when he's kind of counter-striking in the clinch quite effectively, and he throws a really nice rehand uppercut and a really nice lead hook. Again, in combination as guys are stepping in on him. He did the same kind of thing, landed a really nice left hook against Dwight Grant, put him on his ass in the first round. So they both got a, got a knockdown each in that first round, and then they come out. And they've, they've kind of just been headhunting in the first round. And then in the second round, we start to see some more body shots. We start to see a jab into a step-up body kick from Kandoshko. And you're like, damn, we should have been seeing more of that from the fucking get-go, dude. And yeah, they started going to the body a little more. Dwight started going to the body a little more as well. And they looked really good going down there. And then there would be times where they exchange up top and Dwight's throwing these wild overhand rights. That just looked, they looked really over the top. Not a lot of fundamental technique there. Just kind of, yeet, I'm sending this motherfucker to the moon and back. And that was that was a bit frustrating. Because you see them go into the body. You see Kandoshko sometimes throwing a jab to the body. And you're like, damn, that's exactly what you should be throwing more often. Because that is an effective technique. You are doing that very well. And then he just goes back up top with a really sloppy looking combination that doesn't doesn't fit the bill. I was wondering why they weren't low kicking a lot more. And then at the beginning of the second round, Kandoshko goes for an outside low kick and immediately Dwight Grant comes down the middle with a straight right. Reminds you of Brian Ortega versus uh, Alexander Volkanovsky when Ortega caught the outside low kick with the straight right. And that's what led to him nearly getting the topside guillotine that he nearly got on Volkanovsky. So that happened in this fight, but... Uh, and Doshko was able to get back to his feet pretty quickly. Yeah, like, to be honest, I'm going through the fight right now because I was I was talking about those hooks to the body, and I couldn't remember exactly when they happened, but there's one that happens about a minute and a half into the second round where Handoshko throws the straight right while slipping the lead hand of Grant, and then he throws a left hook to the body, and the left hook lands with authority. I'm like, damn, that's what you should be throwing the whole fucking time, dude. Handoshko. That was nice. I like that. Eventually, the finish came from this kind of weird... It's it's like an overhand, because he was shifting forward. Handoshko was coming forward, and he was shifting forward with each of the individual shots. And he was basically in a square stance when he throws this wild... This wild, what would be a left hook if he was, if he was in orthodox. But he wasn't really in orthodox, so I consider it an overhand left. And it, it puts Grant down. And then he follows up, and he's able to get the finish again with the left hook as Dwight's kind of circling off. So yes, all throughout the fight, it seemed like the key for Handoshko was the left hook. So maybe Dwight Grant should uh, address that. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, Sergei Handoshko was game as fuck. It was very entertaining to watch. I think he could tighten up some of his striking in combination when he's being offensive, but on the counter, he's really effective. I think he has some really good timing with his body shots. His step-up body kicks looked really nice as well. I think there's a lot to be excited about with this guy. I just hope he tightens a couple of things up going into the future. Just quickly, I, I just saw this news show up on the MMA subreddit. Zabit, the man who has been MIA for fucking yongs. I think it was his last win against Calvin Cater back in, like, what, 2019 or some shit? Early 2020? Something like that. He's been MIA for a long time, but the top post on the MMA subreddit right now is that Zabit has revealed he will be pursuing a career in medicine. Okay, 
alright, what the fuck, I appreciate it, I, I always appreciate a guy getting out of the game earlier than, earlier than his contemporaries, because this is an unrelenting game, an unrelenting sport, you're going to be fed to the wolves at some point, so if you can get out early, good for you, so good for you Zabit, if this is what you want to do, then I respect it, he will always be one of the, I think he will be one of the biggest what-ifs in mixed martial arts history, because shit, he had such incredible skill, he was so exciting to watch, obviously, he consistently faded in third rounds, as we saw against Calvin Cater, as we saw against Jeremy Stevens, as we saw to a less lesser degree against Kyle Boschniak, but, yeah, I think he probably could have fixed that, he probably could have addressed that very directly, when he was finally going into five-round fights, and, and he was set to go into five-round fights. I believe the fight with with Yair Rodriguez was scheduled, but then I can't recall whether that was Yair pulling out or whether it was Zabit pulling out. One of them pulled out. It was a fucking mess. Yeah, I guess that's that. Zabit is going to be pursuing a career in medicine. I wonder what that means exactly. Maybe he goes and becomes a cardiologist. I, I'm stealing a joke. The the top comment from the MMA subreddit was, never had cardio, so he becomes a cardiologist. Oh, I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist. So I'd just like to have it be known that I am a Kenny Florian-esque plagiarizer. Don't get it twisted. Uh, and additionally, Amazon Prime is the new home of one championship in the USA and Canada, which doesn't really affect me that much. I think, I think... I hope they're still going to be broadcasting most of their events on YouTube because they've been doing that consistently for a while and it's been very good. I've been watching a lot of those fights. So I hope they keep doing that. What else is going on in the world of mixed martial arts in the coming week? How long into this are we? We're about 47 minutes long according to my timer. That might be incorrect according to yours though. So let's have a gaze. Holy shit, they moved the fucking fight. Sorry, I'm just looking through this fight night, this UFC fight night, taking place at the Apex. The main event is Rob Font versus Marlon Vera. We're going to talk about that in a second. We're going to talk about that. But I just noticed Alexander Romanov and Chase Sherman got rescheduled for this week. Chase Sherman, how do you fucking do it, dude? That fight got put together at the last possible notice. Last week. It was meant to be for last week's event. I'm trying to remember who Romanov was set to fight initially, but it was actually an interesting fight that I was high-key excited for. Tanner Bosser, he was that was who he was initially meant to fight. And then that didn't materialize. Bosser came out on Instagram, came out on Twitter, and was like, yeah, I'm injured. All right, whatever. And then Chase Sherman, who'd just recently been cut from the UFC after losing another fight. I believe that was after his loss to Parker Porter which was a fucking hilarious performance from him, and very on-brand for Chase Sherman. He he got re-signed so that he could get beaten up by Alexander Romanov, and then that fight got cancelled on short notice as well. It, it got cancelled on the night of the fight, and so now they're rescheduling it for this week. Like, guys, give up on this fight. It's not happening. It shouldn't happen. Chase Sherman is not a UFC-caliber heavyweight, which is incredible because this division doesn't have a fucking whole heap of depth, but shit, he ain't that good, dude, he ain't that good, but you know, respect, gotta give respect to a guy hustling and getting back into the UFC despite himself, who else is on this card, card's pretty good, if I'm being honest, current main event's not that good, Jake Collier versus Andre Arlovsky, wow, wow, probably gonna avoid that, Andre Philly versus Joannison Brito. I have seen this guy fight before, haven't I? He fought on the Contender Series, won a technical unanimous decision. Okay, so I haven't seen this guy fight. Or I might have seen him fight in LFA. Either way, this is his UFC debut, correct? Yes, it's his UFC debut, if you don't count the Contender Series. That's kind of big. It's a late addition. Apparently, this fight between the two was added relatively recently, like like 25 days ago. Yes. His UFC debut loss. So he did lose in his debut. I'm looking at Tapology. 
Who did he lose to? Ah, oh, Bill Algio. I think I caught that fight. Yeah, no, this should be interesting. I always like watching Andre Philly fight, so that'll be fun. Jared Gordon's back. Jared Gordon disappoints me because, I mean, his story is so emotional and so beautiful. Beautiful, I guess? I don't know. I don't know if beautiful is the right word. But he came into the UFC and he did a piece with one of the big MMA publications and said, you know, a while back I was on drugs, my my life was in the gutter, but I fought back, I made shit happen. He trains out a Rufus Sport, I believe, or he, he did for a certain period. And so guys like Paul Felder were talking about his durability and his his will his will and his willingness to go into deep waters and be better and all this shit. And then he started losing fights. And I'm like, well, this is just depressing now. He had a really, really impressive win over Hakran Diaz. I remember that. That was a really impressive win. And then he lost to Diego Fierro and Joaquin Silva back-to-back. The Carlos Diego Fierro one, you're like, eh, Diego Fierro's fucking good. The Joaquin Silva one, you're like, eh, that's not great. And then he also had a loss after getting a win against Demaret. He lost to Charles Oliveira, which... That was in Charles's, I should probably be fighting better competition, but it's the lightweight division, it's a shark tank, and I've lost too many times, so they're just going to give me, you know, lower level guys for a little while, and I'll beat the fuck out of them until they give me someone more impressive. It was, it was this one and the Daniel Tamor victories that led into the Kevin Lee fight, that you went, ah, uh, he should have been fighting Kevin Lee a while before this. Uh, he shouldn't have been beating up Jared Gordon. <laughs> he shouldn't have been doing that, but he did, uh, and that was a really quick finish, that was uh, about a minute and a half into the fight, and now he's on a three-fight win streak, he beat Chris Fishgold, beat Danny Chavez, and he beat Joe Selecki, the Selecki one was by split decision, but we like Jared Gordon here, so we will not speak ill of him, he's fighting Grant Dawson, that should be a fucking banger of a fight, Darren Elkins is back, he's fighting Tristan Connolly, don't know what to say about that. Darren Elkins' fights are fun. Darren Elkins will probably get his head fucking pinged back and forth. But, you know, it'll be fun regardless. Gerald Mearshart's fighting Christoph Jocko. Yep, I don't care about that, unfortunately. Gerald Mearshart might do some cool grappling stuff. I will watch that because I think, yes, the grappling will be interesting. Francisco Figueredo, who I believe is Davison Figueredo's brother. He's fighting Daniel Da Silva. I believe Francisco had a not successful UFC debut. And yes, he didn't. So hopefully he rebounds. I don't not hopefully. I don't I don't wish ill on Daniel Da Silva. We'll, we'll see what the fuck happens. What else? This card's actually really not that. Wow, this is a pretty dead card. The main event though is really fun. Rob Font obviously coming off of a uh, a difficult fight with Jose Aldo. A fight where, and and let it be known, I nearly did a video on this fight. I had written up a script and I was I began editing, but then by that point it was like a week and a half after the fight had, had happened and I just figured people wouldn't give a shit. But it was a really interesting episode because I was re-watching the fight, going back over it, and Rob Font did so well. He did so well in so many of those rounds. The first round, he comes out, and his technical poise is just, it's incredibly impressive. Against a legend like Jose Aldo, he came out, and he was showing off that jab. He was showing shots to the body. He was outside low-kicking effectively. He was getting back when Aldo was trying to throw the counters, was trying to counter over the top. He looked so fucking good. You know, like, early on in the fight, He's stance switching and he's hitting at this like furious pace. And three and a half minutes into the first round, we're seeing a whole lot less activity. And Aldo's defensive work, it was starting to make Font slow down and consider his shot selection more. There's one point about a minute and a half before the end of the first round where Font's trying to work his jab. His He's trying to jab, slip, and then throw a straight right. And Aldo avoids the shots and ends up taking the center of the cage. And it... These these sequences happen a couple of times in the conclusion of the first round, and it kind of just it seems to be breaking Font's will in real time. 
And so Font stops throwing these combinations because Aldo's slipping these combinations. He's doing really effectively uh, at slipping them. And so Font is now throwing just single shots. He's throwing his jab. He's throwing he's throwing his straight right. And he's, that's all he's throwing. He's not throwing in combination anymore. And Aldo, who's the faster and more powerful fighter, is able to use his speed and offensive technique. He's just, he just starts to light Font up. Uh, he lands some really gorgeous jabs at the end of the first round. And... And even when Font's landing, he's still missing a lot of his shots. And then, ultimately, at the end of the first round, I have a time stamped as 13 seconds before the end of the first round, which I find really funny, given that that's, uh, that's Aldo's lowest moment, I guess. Uh, but yes, 13 seconds before the end of the first round, he hits Font with this ridiculously fast 1-2 right down the pipe, and he steals the round. In spite of the fact that Rob Font threw fuckloads of shots and was doing all the right things, was keeping Aldo working the entire time, he couldn't keep the pace up consistently enough, and he was disenchanted when he was missing some shots, when Aldo was slipping strikes and rolling underneath combinations and pivoting off, as he always does. Font kind of came out of those exchanges feeling disenchanted, and as such, he stopped throwing those combinations, and that's when he got fucked up. Because if you're going to go one-on-one with Jose Aldo, in all likelihood, you're probably not going to come out looking all too flash. And the same kind of thing happened in the second round again. He started so effectively and then just, you know, the volume started to ticker down. And then before you know it, Aldo's the one landing the big shots and Aldo's the one who's hurting the Massachusetts native. But prior to that, had a fucking sensational performance against Cody Garbrandt. His jab looked amazing in that. He had that finish in the first round against Marlon Marias, who's now retired, so that fight, that win doesn't look as impressive on paper as it once did. And then he had that win against Ricky Simone. That looked so good. Ricky Simone is someone I have tremendous respect for in the Bantamweight division. I think he's a sensational talent. That's a really impressive win. And then you go back and there was like the Sergio Pettis win. That victory was so, like you go back and you watch the highlights for that fight and Rob Vaughn looks so impressive, so impressive in that contest. Admittedly, it's against a guy who is clearly too small for the division. At least the the UFC bantamweight division. He's had some success over in the Bellator bantamweight division against guys like Horiguchi, but Horiguchi's also kind of a flyweight. Uh, but in in the UFC bantamweight division against a guy like Rob Von, who's quite big for the division. Yeah, no, it was it was a bit of a mismatch in that sense. But even beyond the grappling, in terms of just the striking, it's very clear that the bigger hitter is Rob Font, and Rob Font's utilizing his jab really effectively. He's pulling back. He's avoiding the left hook of Pettis. Just gorgeous work from him in that contest. Yeah, Rob Font's really sensational. Got a great jab. He can fight out of both stances effectively. In the Aldo fight, he was shooting takedowns, and he shot some really solid takedowns at the beginning of the fight, but... As time went on, they became a bit more labored. Yeah, there's there was one point in the Aldo fight where he did, as, as we talked about last week, we were talking about with Bilal Muhammad, that TJ Dillashaw-esque step-around double leg. And Rob Vont did that same kind of thing against Aldo. It should be, like, I, I was going through the fight and... When he when he does it, it's in round three. It looks like it's going to be a surefire takedown, but Aldo, being the goat of takedown defense, is just like, nah, no, I, I'm going to get my hips back and I'm not letting you do shit. But Rob Von's takedowns are pretty decent. I think he's got good variety with them. He has he has a good selection of single leg work. He can hit the double leg when he's desperate, and I think he has good variations with the double leg. So. This is going to be a really interesting fight because Rob Von, in my opinion, is a much better fighter than Cheeto Vera, but Cheeto has some really good tools on the inside. I think Rob Von's pretty effective on the inside as well. He's got some good elbows. He's very willing to exchange with the elbows. And he is at least, I can't find uh, right now how tall they are and what their reaches are, but I feel like Rob Font is the taller and the longer fighter in this matchup. But Marlon Vera, man, he is a dog. He will bite down on his mouth guard and he will bring himself back into a fight when he is down on the cards. And 
I think the clinch is going to be the really interesting part of this matchup because, like I just said, Rob Font has some good skills in the clinch, some good elbows on the break. Marlon Vera is the king of that. He is reminiscent of your Matt Browns. He stands quite tall. I know it's a fucking predictable thing to say, but he has that Muay Thai-esque stance. Uh, yes, where he brings his lead leg up quite close, or he brings his rear leg up quite close to his lead leg and stands in quite a narrow stance, quite tall. And as a decent jab, as as some good striking, he's been working out of, what what's the name of the gym that Luke Rockhold and Mike Bisping work out? Jason Prillo's gym, uh, where RDA was working for a while as well. I can't remember the name of it, but they're... they're they develop Perillo developed some really decent strikers out of that gym. Obviously, Michael Bisping exists, and they had an extended relationship. So yeah, I think Marlon Vera's striking in the past few years has has, has gotten better and better. His work in the clinch is and always has been really impressive. He is a dirty fighter, and I'm not just mean. I don't mean just in the sense that oh he cheats and whatnot, because sometimes he does cheat a little bit, but. I think more than just that, he's a dirty fighter in the way that he makes a fight dirty. He gets on the inside. He will dirty box with guys. He'll throw to the body when he's in the pocket and when he's in tight. He'll grab single collar ties and then he'll go over the top with his with his opposite side elbow. He just creates dirty exchanges and roughs motherfuckers up in that range. He has really nice outside low kicks as well. Yeah, his leg kicking game is really impressive. He's become very good at targeting the calf kick. I know the obvious example is going to be the Sean O'Malley fight, but it's it's an obvious example for a reason. Sean O'Malley fucking crumpled in that fight, and it was because of the low kicks. So, I think this will be a very interesting fight. I think Rob Font, if you are a betting individual, Rob Font should be your favorite, but it could very well be a closer fight than the betting lines might give you. I just looked at the line here at Sports Bet. In Australia, Rob Font's listed as a dollar seventy-two favorite. Marlon Vera's two dollars ten. Fuck you if you go by Vegas odds, I guess. Um, yeah, so Rob Font is the clear favorite, but the line isn't as far out or as wild as I thought it might be. There might be some value putting some money on Marlon Vera by KO slash TKO. I don't think he wins a decision victory in this instance. I just don't think he is. I don't think he's consistent enough with his pace, and I think whilst Rob Font did get very tired against Aldo, I think Aldo is is really difficult because he is constantly slipping. His head movement is S-tier. It's some of the best in mixed martial arts. If we're talking about pure, like, boxing-styled head movement, his slipping, his pivoting, his you know, his footwork, his defensive and offensive footwork is so incredibly impressive. You watch his fight against Piotr Jan, and that, that becomes abundantly clear, even as he's getting a lot older. So... You're not going to have that with Marlon Vera. Marlon Vera's his head movement is nowhere near as good. He stands too tall. He's just not going to have the same kind of head movement as Jose motherfucking Aldo. So Rob Font is not... I don't think he's going to be... I don't think he's going to struggle to land his combinations as much as he did against Aldo. And as such, I think he's going to be able to push forward. And he's going to be able to stitch together his combinations in a much more assured and confident way than he was against Aldo. Like I said, against Aldo, as the rounds wore on, Font was missing more and more and more, and that put him off from throwing combinations, whereas Marlon Vera is going to be there for those combinations. The body shots are going to land, I'm telling you. I think Rob's going to go really effectively to the body. I think he's got to be careful of things like step-in knees from Vera, step-in elbows from Vera, but ultimately I think Rob Font is the favorite for a reason and is probably going to pick up a victory there. What else is also this weekend? Uh, PFL is going on. There's some interesting fights like Lance Palmer versus Chris Wade. I'm joking. Lance Palmer's not that interesting to watch fight, but, you know, I guess it's technically a high-level fight, so you should probably watch it. What else is on this card? Ante Deliha is fighting. The man who was meant to at one point fight Cyril Garn, but then that fight fell apart, and he didn't actually make it to the UFC. He's fighting Matthias. Matthias? Matthias? Sheffel. Skeffel. Wow, really butchered that pronunciation. Kyle Boschniak's back against Bubba Jenkins. That should be, at the very least, fun. Hopefully. Hopefully. I think they'll they'll probably exchange on the feet. Shaman Marias is fighting Boston Salmon. Holy shit, that's a banger. 
I will very much be watching that. That should be heaps of fun. Yeah, there's some interesting fights on this card, I guess. Um, kudos taking on Lofnane. Lofnane. Again, fucking up these pronunciations. That one's a good fight. Yeah, I'd, I'd say check out the PFL card as well, which I think might actually be happening today or tomorrow. I think it's happening tomorrow. So if this is coming out on the same day that I'm actually putting, or I'm actually recording this, then uh, fucking check out the PFL card tomorrow. Fucking A. Anyway, shit, I've spoken for far too long. Yes, uh, thank you for joining me for this second episode of the Five Figures podcast. I'm Callum. As it, as it weirdly states on Spotify, it just says the author is Callum, no last name. I think I fucked up there, but I don't know. Maybe it'll give me a bit of a cult of personality. Like, hey, yes, I just go by my first name, motherfucker. Ha ha ha. Yes. Uh, thank you for joining me on this this hour and fucking six minute long podcast. Shit. Enjoy the fights this weekend. And then next week, we're going to be, we're probably going to rush through all the fights that happened this weekend. They're not going to be that interesting, I would assume. And we're going to run straight into talking about UFC 274 because holy shit, that fight has some disappointing fights on it. Yes. But the main event slaps. The fucking main event, dude. Justin Gaethje versus Charles Oliveira. That's going to be a banger. So we're going to have a lot to talk about in that sense. So, I'll catch you next week. See you later. Obviously, the main event was Jessica Andrade versus Amanda Limosh. I really like Amanda Limosh. I thought coming into this fight, she was going to give some issues to Andrade just based on the fact that she has a really nice jab, beautiful outside low kick. She's a really well-practiced striker. Her fainting game is good. And she showcased all of that in the first few minutes of this fight. And then Jessica Andrade just did Jessica Andrade things. She just got in and did a standing head and arm choke. I, I'm, I'm just going to jump straight to the point. Yes, she did a standing head and arm choke. And that was that. And it was kind of dope. But it was like, okay, cool. I don't know what the fuck else you do with Jessica Andrade now. Do you feed her to the uh, the upper echelon of the division now? I mean, she went up to flyweight to avoid the upper echelon of the division because she had lost to Zhang Weili. She had lost to Yoannian Jacek. She had lost to Rose Namajunas twice. No, sorry, she won the first fight. I compl- I almost I almost forgot. She won the first fight, but then she lost the rematch, which was going to inhibit her from getting back into the title picture immediately. So that's when she that's when she went up to flyweight, and then she has come she's come back down now uh, since losing to Valentina. Now she has a win over Lemos, which is kind of disappointing because I wanted to see Amanda Lemos in the upper echelon of the division taking on some of the more skilled girls at strawweight. And now we're just going to see her middle about in the middle rankings for a little while. But oh well. Jessica Andrade did some dope, really weird, funny shit. And it was cool. 